You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Road Freight Association. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's 19 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock and we're taking your calls right now on 011-883-0702. Some of your voice notes for the Naked Scientist have come in. We'll squeeze them in between the calls. But give us a call to chat to Dr. Chris Smith. He's the head of virology at uh, Cambridge University in the UK. And he joins us every single Monday. He's got a great podcast called Naked Scientist, but he joins us every Monday to answer your calls around all sorts of scientific phenomena or questions you may have. Good afternoon, Chris. Hello. (laughs) Which accent is that one? Oh, it's just the friendly, uh, it's very hot here, but uh, I'm delighted to be warmed by your voice sort of accent, if if there is one. Well, it's good to be with you. Um, I know you you guys have talk of Freedom Day coming up. Your freedom. Well, yes. Apparently, today is Freedom Day. Uh, The 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 sort of subtlety in this is that it is the day that the government actually say that some of the mandatory changes that were made to control coronavirus have been removed. That doesn't mean that uh, coronavirus has gone away, of course, and it doesn't mean that people abandon all of the measures that they were taking. It means that the legal basis for having those measures has been rescinded because previously you were breaking the law if you didn't do some of the things that were being uh, urged upon mm-hmm. people. Now it is more a move to, towards making people take personal responsibility for what they do, but uh, it is not a, a legal thing if you don't do those things. And at the same time, a number of other things that had been closed hitherto have reopened. Nightclubs and theatres are back on again. I don't know how long for, though. It depends if the Prime Minister can hold his nerve, uh, not not least because he's currently isolating, because he got, uh, it turned out he was a contact of the Health Secretary, uh, Sajid Javid, who has himself tested positive over the weekend for coronavirus, despite being double jabbed. And, uh, and because the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Prime Minister were both in close contact with him, they're now having to isolate for 10 days. So it's going to be interesting seeing how he gets on running the country when he can't actually come to work. But then, you know, there are plenty of countries where that's been the case with their leaders yeah. for quite a long time. So <laughs> we, we wait and see. <laughs> but um, I yeah. think what we're going to see is lots and lots of cases will happen, as a, to be honest. But we've got lots of cases anyway. We estimate between fifty and 100,000 a day currently. And uh, the good news is, though, because that would normally be absolutely uh, terrifying, that number, the good news is that these are chiefly in much younger people and people who haven't been vaccinated. And um, as a result, the number of people who are actually going to hospital, the number of people who are passing away because of coronavirus, despite these very eye-watering numbers, remain quite low. Yes, and I know that's why this is such an interesting test case for the rest of the world. But it's also brought back the debate around mask wearing. And the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, um, says that mask people should continue to wear their masks. But then there's a Dr. Colin Axon who um, has talked about masks and the fact that we need to understand scientifically what's going on, that it's a comfort blanket. I mean, the analogy he used, he said that the particles, you know, the COVID-19 viral particles are are quite small. And Chris, just listen to this analogy. He said, the small sizes are not easily understood, but an imperfect analogy would be to imagine marbles 
being fired at builders' scaffolding. Some might hit a pole and rebound, but obviously most will fly through. So he believes that masks are uh, a comfort blanket, but describes the ability of these COVID-19 viral particles, which are like an aerosol, um, as moving through these cloths like marbles being thrown through builder scaffolding what kind of size i mean i mean is there a way of describing the size of this of these viral particles yeah i read that and i think the point he's trying to make actually is that um a mask is not the same as one mask is not the same as another all mm-hmm. things are not made equal and if people just cover their mouth or face with something just a piece of material or something then that could be a piece of material that's very high-grade medical cloth, which will stop a virus. But on the other hand, some of the things that people are using and calling a mask, and they're deriving very strong levels of comfort from it, are nowhere near capable of stopping a virus particle. Coronavirus is about 100 nanometers across each virus particle. That's one ten-thousandth of a millimeter. So if you imagine a ruler stretched out in front of you, and you look at the first centimeter, and you look at the first millimeter in that centimeter, and you divide that millimeter into 10,000, you could put at least 10,000 coronaviruses side by side across that first millimeter. So in other words, to stop something like that, you've got to have a hole which is much smaller than that. And when you hold some of these fabrics up to the light, you can see straight through them. And that is the point he's making. He's not saying, so don't bother using face coverings, because, of course, in a hospital setting where people are using high-grade equipment to, which has been properly fitted to their face, and that's the other thing, because I spoke to another researcher last week, and she was saying, actually, if you go and look at the, the general public, most people, even if they are diligently wearing face coverings, they're not wearing them properly. And, and that means there are lots of holes and gaps all over the place, so the virus particles can fly straight out of them or straight in round the side of them. And, and this is the point they're making, that these things, when used properly in the right setting, can be effective, but most people probably are not using the right materials or they're not actually wearing them as effectively as they could. Either way, it adds up to a comfort blanket because it makes people feel better, but it doesn't actually achieve very much. Yes. Oh, thank you for that explanation. I see it. I, I, I could see my ruler uh, and that first millimeter. Let's go to uh, Tiger. Tiger's calling from Houghton this afternoon. Hello, Tiger. Hi, it's Tiger, man. How are you, ma'am? Okay. We're, we're Professor, good. I have a question for you. Professor, yeah. an inter- interesting question. How does a tubeless valve work? What is the scientific theory behind it? Exactly, how does it operate to take so much of air in and give you such a good inflated tire? tire? Tubeless valve. Which valve are you talking about? Tubeless valve on any tire. How does it work? What is the scientific jargon behind it or whatever the scientific theory? Tubeless valve. The valves that are in tires. Have you ever? I don't know if you've ever taken one out. If you unscrew the valve in a tire, what you'll see is a thin spindle that goes down the middle of the valve and it has around its middle imagine where you put your belt around your waist it has a belt of a big rubber band and at the bottom where it goes in is a spring or is is a piece of metal that can move and when you screw the valve in it's because it goes down the shaft and the shaft is angled in such a way that uh, the valve wants to come back out again when you push air in it can depress the valve against the spring and push air in 
but when the air tries to come back the wrong way, it pushes the piece of metal with the rubber waistband upwards until it jams in the slot and stops the air coming back out again. So in that way, you, you get air in easily because you can easily push, because of the shape of the inlet, against the spring, the valve downwards, and drive air in. But then it comes back out and blocks the hole so air can't come out the wrong way round, unless you want to let the tyre down by pressing down hard on the central pin, and then you depress it and the air can come around the sides. Okay, thank you for that call. Next, we go to Northcliffe with Sandy's question. Sandy? Um, hi. Hi, uh, um, um, Dr. Chris. My question is, why do our bodies manufacture mucus? What is the benefit of mucus? Because it can become, you know, post-nasal to phlegm to bronchial. And what is its value? And why does it become so deadly? <laughs> nice. Thank you, it, it can make you question at times, can't it? Why on earth does my body make all this muck that I then have to blow out and makes me cough and splutter? The answer is that it's there for a really good reason. Mucus is made on mucus membranes as a defense layer. And it's made by cells that are embedded in those membranes called goblet cells. They secrete a mixture of proteins, including one called mucin, which bind a lot of water and make a sticky, slimy layer. That sticky, slimy layer has a very important role in soaking up nasties. If you breathe in stuff up your nose that shouldn't be going up your nose, dust particles, fungal particles, fungal spores, bacteria, viruses, because of the shape of your airways, the air is caused to spin on its way up the airways, and as a result, a bit like a whirly dryer, it flings the material that's suspended in the air into contact with the walls of your nose and throat, and because there's a layer of protective sticky mucus there, the material can stick in that mucus and is immobilized. And you can then blow it out, it drips out, or you can sniff and swallow it. And in that way, nasties that could otherwise attack the cells lining your nose can't get into you. So it's a really good first line of defense. And the same goes on in your, in your stomach and your intestines. You have a layer of mucus from your mucous membranes in the stomach, and this keeps the acid in your stomach away from the wall of the stomach. And similarly, further down the intestine, your digestive juices are kept away from the wall of the stomach, uh, of, the, of the wall of the intestine by a layer of mucus. And also the passage of food and so on is lubricated on its way down the gastrointestinal tract by that same mucus. So it, it does have a very important role in helping things to move along, lubricating things like the surface of your eye, but also providing a defense site so nasties like bacteria, viruses, fungi and so on can't attack you. But when your body undergoes attack or infection, it does ramp up the production of mucus to defend itself. But unfortunately, when you do increase the production of mucus, there are some side effects and consequences which are feeling stuffed up and, and obviously having to blow out a lot of mucus and snot when you have a blocked up nose. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, so it is useful after all, as irritating as it may be. Then uh, let's go to Caller Gardens next. A question from Lee. Hi, Lee. Hi, Aza. Um, the question I have for Dr. Chris is, uh, we've been told to cover our noses and mouths uh, for, uh, to protect us against the virus, but is the virus transmittable through our eyes at all and also through bought foods? Right. Okay. Yeah, two, two very important questions. In terms of what you would buy, 
No, the likelihood of buying food that's contaminated with coronavirus is extremely remote. The virus only lasts for so long on an inert surface and the amount that would probably be on there is going to be so low that given that you cook most food anyway, the, the cooking process would inactivate the virus. So I wouldn't worry about that and I put that to one side. In terms of eyes, yes, this is a risk factor. Although covering the nose and mouth is one portal of entry into the body, your eyes have tear ducts, which drain, or lacrimal ducts, which drain the tears from your eyes down into your nose. So anything that lands on your eyes can uh, either directly infect your eyes in some circumstances, some viruses do do that, but equally, it's washed down into your nose and can infect you via that route. So that's why doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals in hospitals who are confronted with patients who may be highly infectious, they will use a close-fitting mask over the nose and mouth which has been properly fit tested to make sure it forms a seal so that defends that point but they also will use eye protection to stop this sort of ingress into the body but flipping that round the kind of face coverings that people are being urged to wear in public are not there to protect the wearer they are there to protect everybody else from the wearer because when a person's infected with any kind of respiratory virus you are coughing spluttering sneezing and just breathing out a cloud of droplets all the time. You can see yourself doing this if you go out on a cold day and you'll see the uh, water vapour that comes out with your breath. Those are tiny droplets of moisture from your airways. And if you have a virus uh, infecting you, growing in your airways, some of those droplets will have virus particles locked up in them. So when you breathe out, if you breathe out through a layer of masking material, it can reduce the amount of droplet in what you breathe out and therefore can help to cut down how much virus you're dispensing into the air around you, which can in turn help to reduce the likelihood of infecting a third party. So under those settings, eye protection is less important because you're not protecting other yourself from infection, you're protecting other people from what you might be breathing out. Great. Uh, David, you're going to be our final caller this afternoon. Hi. Hi, um, thank you. I was reading an article the other day which suggested that clouds act as transmitters of bacteria, that the clouds effectively have a whole bunch of bacteria in them and that they transmit it and effectively when it rains you might get bacteria coming down in the rain. I mean, does that make sense? David, hello. The answer is yes. This is very sound science and mm -hmm. when researchers have flown aeroplanes and other aircraft through clouds with cloud collectors in them, they're able to extract a cross-section of what is in a cloud. And there's a whole range of things, including particles of pollution and bits of coal, even dandruff in there. But one of the oh. things that's repeatedly picked up are bacteria. And specifically, there are certain types of bacteria called Pseudomonas syringae. These are plant pathogens. And what we think happens is that the bacteria grow on the leaves of plants, wind blows them up into the clouds, and these bacteria have a particular chemical trick up their sleeves which is that they have on the surface of the outer the outer coat of the bacteria a particular configuration of proteins which have the ability to dramatically raise the temperature at which water freezes so what they are able to do is to provoke water crystals to form around the bacterium and that is what goes on in a cloud normally you have little particles that act as a nucleation center to make rain well these bacteria make clouds make ice crystals around themselves and when the ice crystals become sufficiently heavy they will then come down out of the cloud and land on the ground 
And in this way, any distance the, tra the cloud has travelled in the meantime has transported the bacteria from one part of Earth to another. And when they reach the Earth's surface, they'll land on the leaves of plants, and it may well be that they can use that same clever chemistry that encourages water to freeze to form ice crystals on the surface of the leaf, obviously when the temperature is low enough. But those, those ice crystals will damage the surface of the leaf and release from the leaf nutrients that the bacteria can then grow on. And then the whole process begins over again. And uh, scientists have known about this for some time. And in fact, they've been able to use the phenomenon and stolen the chemistry from these bacteria to make chemicals that promote the formation of ice crystals so that when you want to make ice and snow, for instance, on a ski slope with a snow cannon, you can make the ice much more readily by adding some of the chemistry from these bacteria. And there is a, a product on the market called Snowmax, which is based exactly on this principle. Oh, that's so fascinating. Great question. Uh, to end things off on, David, thank you. Something to go quickly go Google and read up more about. Chris, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Asa. Have a great week and uh, see you next time. You too. You too. That is Dr. Chris Smith for The Naked Scientist.